Vodka. 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 Vodka O'Clock. Hey everyone, it's Amber Love. You are listening to the Vodka O'Clock podcast from AmberUnmasked.com. Don't forget that you can sponsor the show on the website. Go to Patreon.com slash AmberUnmasked. And it is now a per month pledge. So you can uh, just basically pick like a flat fee instead of the, you know, when something comes out fee. And I really, really appreciate it. And also, if you haven't heard yet, my first mystery novel, Cardiac Arrest, is out. There are links on the website, but you should be able to find it easily on places like Amazon. So um, let's get to the show. Today, joining me is one of my comic friends. Carl Slominski is here, and we're going to talk about uh, making comics and life and how we express that and stuff. So hey, welcome, Carl. Hey, thanks for having me. So... um, we met years ago and years ago, and I remember being blown away by Golgotha, which was a project of yours. Yeah, it's been some time now, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been a while. Mm. So you were part of the crew at 215 Inc., still. which is like still one of my favorite indie press um, publishers for comics. Our boys. Uh, They're delightful, aren't they? They are so great. I mean, you got the Perkins Brothers cranking out great sci-fi stuff, mm. and you've got that amazing Jenny Wood. Oh, so good. Flutter. Flutter and, um, you know, so a huge catalog of good stuff and good material at 215 Inc. Um, and also, you're always delightful at your booth, which I've seen you guys in, like, I've seen the group in Baltimore and in New York. I don't know what other kind of shows you do, but that's where I've seen you. I don't do that many shows, so wherever they are, yeah. they are there. <laughs> yeah, because it's, like, people that are all over the, the country, so they kind of break up where they can have a presence, yeah. which is kind of um, but, you know, since Golgotha, you've, I remember seeing you announce that you were going to like hone in on telling more personal stories and being in control of your own creativity rather than work for hire. Yeah. Yeah. I basically What's going just, on? I reached, I reached that point where work for hire, the hired gunslinger mentality of freelancing just wasn't wasn't doing it anymore. I was getting tired of drawing other people's stories. Not a reflection on, you know, any of the people that I've worked with or anything like that, but just it became like that gun to my head moment where I just go, look, you're either going to be working on other people's stuff and putting off all these stories that you've been writing, or you're just going to bite the bullet and uh, move forward with your own stuff. And my God, that was a lot of gun analogies. Apparently, I've got violence on the brain this morning. Well, you know, because all we hear about every five minutes is Trump stuff. So uh, I was just watching Heat, so it might have something to do with it. <laughs> it might have something to do with it. Um, but it's, you know, the the projects, I think, can be really cathartic when you're, you're sort of telling your own story. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, you know, how, like, how does it feel for you when you're making art? And there's something personal behind it. Like, do you care if people know the real honest to God truth behind the story? Or do you just want them, the audience, to have their interpretation of the stories? Um, I think it depends on the project. There's a few things that I'm working on right now where there's just light sprinklings of personal experience that I'm pretty sure a reader could glean from that. Um, And then there are some things that are just so on the nose, like you, you know that it's very much rooted in reality. Um, no matter how far-fetched it may be. Um, but, I mean, I'm I'm pretty much way too involved in the stuff that I'm doing. I'm very much married with my work. It's 
everything is a passion project. So it's something that has to get out. I need to get it on the page and I need to put it out. And uh, I, I think that kind of speaks volumes for the body of work itself. Do you go through periods where you just can't get anything out? It's just in your brain and you can't make sense of it? Yeah, actually, I, I hit the wall about a month ago on a project and uh, spent a good week basically writing and rewriting and uh, hating everything I did. <laughs> okay, so how do you get, come out of that? Um, you put it aside. I always work with uh, like two or three other projects going at once. And if one's not working, then I can always, you know, put it aside and start working on something else. And if that doesn't work, I can come back to it. And it's, it's a lot healthier than just being like, oh, I'm the worst and I quit. Um, because you're not, you know, you're not the worst and you shouldn't quit ever. But you have to understand that sometimes, especially if you're getting too close to a project, maybe you need time to decompress from it, maybe to distance yourself a little bit, especially if it's personal to you. You don't want to just like find yourself entrenched in that long, dark time of the soul. It could, you know, it could actually kick your ass and you don't want to have yourself kicking your own ass because then you're dealing with more things that you never thought you'd have to deal with, like self-doubt and just experiences that you never really wanted to face again if it's coming from a deep place like that. But, um, yeah, I think it helps to keep a lot of pots on the stove. Yeah, I can, I definitely do that too. Even if it's a different format, um, if I can't write, um, certainly not fiction, because writing fiction is completely different than writing, um, you know, like blogging memoir stuff. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's a whole different, like I can crank out, uh, you know, something honest and personal from my life a lot faster than I can do fiction. But, you know, there's, times when I'm just be like, you know what, I'm just going to go and play with fabric right now or something else because it just needs to turn on a different part of my brain. Oh, absolutely. Oh, it's especially helpful if you're not working in the same format too. Like if comics are, you know, grinding my gears, I'll go into the studio and just start working on paintings just because it's a completely different formula and it's a different way of looking at stuff. I love your painting. Thank you. I do too, actually. Uh, I'm really getting to a place where I don't mind showing off the stuff that I'm doing, I used to be really self-conscious about like any of my gallery work stuff because um, I treated them as separate things. But I've been really integrating that sort of uh, that kind of approach into my comics. And I think it's actually strengthened me as an illustrator quite a bit. A lot of the stuff that I'm doing now is very much a lot more personal and it does have a much more uh, fine arts approach than before when I was just cranking out comics. Did you go to art school? I went to the Joe Kubert School for cartoon. Oh, you did? Yeah. Well, there you go. So I, have, I do have a formal education in comics and doodling. Um, uh -huh. But the fine art aspect was basically a lot more of a uh, more of a therapeutic thing for me. Like I've always had, you know, one foot in commercial art and one in, uh, you know, um, portraiture and, well, street art, basically. I mean, I come from <laughs> a back history it, of a lot of street art. so Yeah, it does look like a lot of your paintings to me look like they should be taking up the side of of buildings. Which they have. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it's like it just has that that energy about it where there's color splashes and um, like your exaggerations of the anatomy are done in a very specific way. And um, it's one of those things where when I look at like one of your comic book pages, even there is 
detail that you may not notice until the 10th time you've looked at the picture. And anyone that looks at my stuff more than one time is awesome in my book. Because, <laughs> you know, with comics, it's very much easy. It's easy to find it as disposable. You read the words, you look at the picture, on to the next one. To the next one, yeah. So, you, I mean, like, a lot of stuff isn't studied panel by panel. Exactly. Only stuff. comic book artists do that. <laughs> They're literally yeah. the only people that study panel by panel. But uh, anyone that reads for the art specifically, like, you know that they look at everything and try to figure out the nuances of the page. And I'm so unabashedly guilty of that. I love, love, love deconstructing uh, an illustrator's page work. It's just that's endlessly fascinating to me. Well, in Golgotha, you had a character that was this, you know, a very trippy philosophical character. And now in your new book, um, the Teeter Topple book, you've got... um, a lot of brain activity going on too. And um, so there are certain points where the reader has the chance to see what all the imagery inside of the character's brain is. Yeah, very much so. That's entirely intentional too. (laughs) Yeah. So it's, I mean, when you're doing something like comics, I mean, it was different because I read it on my screen Mm -hmm. so I could make stuff bigger and really look at it. But you know, there's also something that could be lost in, like, say, a printed version where people aren't able to zoom in. So when you're when you're working, do you mind knowing that the stuff's going to be missed by people? You know, uh, I don't really pay much attention to the printed version. I mean, I know that's terrible to say, but it's the only thing that a printed comic does for you is get it into the hands of someone else. Um I know whatever details are there are there, and if you do take the time to look at, you know, the details that I've put in, that'll add to the story, especially with Teeter Topple. That is so, there are so many very specific choices I make with the execution of certain pages and, uh, like, color schemes and stuff like that, that really are meant to resonate and really are impactful to the way you read the story. Um, So in a lot of ways, I, I do care but I understand that it can be glossed over. Okay. Um, yeah, because it's one of those things where uh, sometimes I've noticed that creators get really upset when fans or reviewers do something like say, oh, this looks rushed, the anatomy is off, or something like that. Like they get really defensive and pissed off about that. Like, oh, how do you know something's rushed? It's like it's it means that it looks like the – that the perspective is off and that, that it's not symmetrical or whatever the case is. It just looks like it what didn't have the same care as the panel on this page, you know? Yeah. And I always feel like that's kind of an unfair assumption too, especially in reviews because so much of the time the person reading your stuff is reading it for the first time. They've never seen what you do. So they're always going to assume that like their frame of reference is the only way comics can be made. And I've, mm-hmm. I've said this before, um, but I feel like most comic book reviews, you know, if they don't come from a wide variety of different formats and genres and, you know, a deep understanding of the medium, a lot of times their frame of reference is going to be like, I'm going to compare Batman to Paul Pope, you know, right. or I'm going to take a Howard Chaikin book and compare that to Mouse. And like, they're, there's, they're not even in the same ballpark. They're not playing the same game. So, I mean, I think context has a lot to do with that. But if people understand that, like, there are just a myriad of interesting 
completely inspiring voices in comics, maybe they'll understand that, you know, not everything has to be like this cookie cutter uh, style or execution. I mean, I get banged on that a lot too. Like reviews, especially with the last few things that I've done, will always say like, I don't really like how he draws faces or I don't like the exaggerated whatever. But on the other hand, there are people that go, oh my God, it's the best the way he exaggerates faces and like you feel the emotion and like the grit and all that. It's just, it's personal preference, man. It all depends on what you read. I consider myself a very niche comics illustrator. So if you're into things that are a little bit more about the storytelling and a little bit about the the feel and the emotions that they convey, you'll probably be really into my stuff. But if all you're reading is like big two books, you're probably, you're going to like the stuff, but you're not going to appreciate where it's coming from as much. Right. I don't expect any um, headline articles about your work to say he changed this character's outfit. Oh, yeah. I'll never get those jobs anyway, so we'll never have to worry about that. <laughs> like the headline, Carl Slominski draws X-Men, will never happen. So rest assured, America, I don't aim to ruin your precious fan stuff. Um, but Teeter Topple is uh, it's so emotional. And yet you – it's – I don't know if you uh, – like Donnie Darko, but I'm going to throw this out there. You can take like ridiculously dark things and you still have this humor in where you kind of look at a patient and just go, God, he's so ridiculous here. What is happening? And you have to laugh at some of these pages, like where the little imaginary friends or the puppets are coming to life. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, that's completely intentional and a complete reflection on me because I don't I'm not a a uh, I'm not a macabre person, but I tend to dwell on the darker side of things in a whimsical way. I'm uh, I, I like to consider it more like the nightlight uh, when you're a kid because you're afraid of the dark. You got that little like nightlight that keeps keeps it just a little bit brighter. I very much teeter topple is the nightlight of what could potentially be a very dark story. When I originally wrote teeter topple, it was very much. Um, a story about loss and coming to terms with loss and regret and the emotions that follow with that. And it was years later that I realized that that story is, it's not me. It's not indicative of me, the source material, essentially, because it is very autobiographical at times. So a lot of that came from just my, a new outlook that I, I was, I was basically figuring that, uh, you know, dwelling on the darkness isn't going to exercise those demons at all you have to be able to look back on the past and either laugh at it or understand how ridiculous that those moments of turmoil really are and what better way to do that when puppets yeah i mean do you take the opportunity then to sort of like rewrite your own history and say well you know what if it had been this way instead um for the most part yes and no um in a lot of ways the 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 stuff that uh, the main character Mark deals with are very much rooted in uh, moments of my past. But I mean, I never had like a complete mental breakdown where I'd start going into parallel worlds, talking to like comic book characters or puppets from a TV show. <laughs> um, but I mean, they're not they're not unintentionally there. They're very specific reasons for the characters that he interacts with, and they are in many ways, reflections of his personal views. 
Um, anytime he interacts with Major Tom, the spaceman character, it's from a comic book that he and his friend read uh, in his childhood. So he's always there popping up at the last minute to protect him from memories that he doesn't want to admit to. Um, it's, that's very intentional. It's very much um, utilizing these bizarre and um, just kind of unrelated things as tools to finding the path to understanding what he's going through and helping him through this arduous journey that he's on. So we're going to get into like really kind of dissecting some of the, the creation process oh, here. Please, I love uh, that. Let's do some shop yeah. talk. Let's do some of this. So with Mark um, and his best friend, Chris, there's uh, one page where you have them looking out over a city. I don't know if that's supposed to be LA or what it is, but they're up on this, uh, you know, cliff and you can see the city below. Yeah. I love that shot. Uh, that is one of the few things like that was the first time I said, yeah, I'm really proud of something I've done. Well, good. Cause that's, I, I mean, when I had mentioned that you throw in these incredible details that um, like if you were taking uh, the sort of like grinding job where you had to put out, you know, a page every other day or something to meet a deadline, it would be, I don't know how different your work would be, but probably the same. The, probably, okay. Yeah. The details, the details in like you have the, every single building drawn out and you like every blade of grass and at the same time the characters have enough formed that like I never confused the characters and sometimes I'll go and look at other books and I don't know one character from the next because they all look the same just oh you know it has to be in color because if their hair color didn't change I wouldn't know who was yeah him. absolutely now the benefit um, of house style yeah <laughs> so yeah it's just a template so um so I if I was wondering if a scene like this where you'd be like, I now have to draw 10,000 little buildings, like if you like that or if you were mad at yourself for saying, why did I write this? No, actually, the whole reason they're standing and looking over the city is because I always wanted to draw that. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, a lot of that book is just me putting the scenes that I need to happen into places that I wanted to draw. And I, oh... I have an affinity for cityscapes. I don't understand where it comes from. Maybe it's from living in New York or, or being around LA for a little bit. Just, I love, 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 love cityscapes at night. There's something kind of intoxicating about just looking down on this entire world and having a little bit of a separation from that. It's, it really is inspiring to me. So I will throw in cityscapes as often as I can into pretty much everything I'm doing. Like with ashes, uh, the book that I did with Mario Candelaria previously, there was a huge opportunity for me to draw rooftops and cityscapes since it was, you know, taking place in New York. And that was, that was Christmas morning for me. I love drawing that kind of stuff. Oh, that's good to hear. Cause I know, I mean, it seems like every artist has something that they hate drawing. It's like, Oh my God, I never want to draw cars. You know, horses. I never want to draw <laughs> horses. horses. Horses okay. are the worst. They can fuck right off. That's it's so funny because that's what I, I saw was I just saw somebody say, I will draw stampedes of horses before I ever want to draw cars. <laughs> oh, my God. That is there's no no argument on that one for me. Like there's very few things that I won't try to draw. But let me tell you something. Horses are the worst. But detail of like cityscapes or engineering or anything like that, like whatever. Just give me my red wine. Get me some music. I'll just veg out and just draw it just get lost yeah. in that page for like the rest of the night. There you go. Set something in Pittsburgh where there's like 1800 bridges and <laughs> I'm into it. I'm into it. <laughs> and they're all different. <laughs> all of them. 
Nothing's more boring than uh, exterior desert. It's like, all right, fine. 20 minutes later, there's your damn desert. Oh, my goodness. And then the there was so much visual change going on through the book where um, – which is something I always think is really cool. Like it wasn't a, uh, necessarily just flashbacks, but you have, you do show um, a, a page where the comic that Mark is thinking about, you have like the fake pages of, uh, you know, what that co- cosmic crusaders, you know, year, you know, 1970, whatever yeah, yeah. was, was supposed to be. And it's all aged, um, which I'm always fascinated with how they can do that, how you can make something look like it's, you know, authentically old. And then, uh, and you have your little fake copyright thing at the bottom, which I did read. I love that has got so many inside baseball jokes in it. Um, that those are fun pages to do. Like that whole thing is just basically me wanting to draw the Micronauts. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where the, the one character comes from that Mark starts, uh, sort of seeing or thinking about and you know his like his mental guide yeah major tom Um, totally named after a bowie song okay awesome yeah oh there is so many so much stuff like that in there yeah there's a list chocked full of subtle pop culture nuances i mean forget about it i I doubt people will get like 10 percent of them so much of them are just so indicative of me (laughs) the the so this character mark was uh basically working on this kids puppet show thing yeah the hush of my house and you know so they eventually you know unfortunately cancel like a lot of shows are like most kids shows kids shows don't have a long shelf life so it's you know so this character is suddenly faced with this oh my god my life has changed and it was completely out of his own control and he has to start facing all of this so aside from the baggage that was already plaguing his mind now he's got this trigger that's like you know my life just blew up in my face yeah on multiple levels too like he had one bad day like everything happened wrong on one day so it's yeah and you're you know so you're dealing with this character's uh, you know, going through his actions and at the same time going through his mind's actions. Mm-hmm. And you had mentioned color before, and I, I noticed that immediately in your work is that you your color choices always feel so specific. So, you know, you produce these like somber, self-absorbed and sometimes really sad protagonists. And then you have like these philosopher characters and the philosopher characters are often in like, you know, very black and white. Um, but then you have you'll have like these shooting colors that are background, but not the character themselves yeah. or something. Yeah. Um, so, you know, like you drop a bomb on, on Mark's life and he's in the middle of this, you know, these, these scapes that are all really colorful with primary colors, like yellow and red and maybe green, but it's like, it's, everything's bold. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so it's like it's like if this is what inside Mark's brain is like, is everything is super vibrant and super bright. And meanwhile, when we're seeing like Mark in his real life, it's black and white. Yeah. Well, that's the that's the, uh, the Wizard of Oz approach. The reality being in the black and white and, you know, all the funsy stuff is in color. But I mean, our subconscious are so without limit what better way to depict that in comics than to just push 
the contrast up and to bring in all the bright colors and to, you know, have them be reflective on what aspects of his subconscious we're playing with. Like the, uh, the scenes with the, uh, the yellow skies of Mark's, uh, decimated subconscious, basically just this post-apocalyptic landscape. That's how he views, you know, his life at moment. It's in a big old upheaval of things that need to be fixed and brought back to life. And, uh, but it's still colorful. So it's still, it, it may be in ruins as he sees it, but it's, there's a potential of rebuilding because it's still vibrant with all these electrifying colors that you don't see in his reality. Let's, what I was, I'm glad that you brought up the yellow because it was one of the things that I was curious about was if you applied specific, um, like correspondences, like, you know, that, um, you know, I guess in different belief systems, the spectrum is different, means different things. Yeah. You know, so like yellow is sometimes either for courage or for cowardice and red is either anger or for passion. Yeah. You know, so I didn't know if you had very specific things because it felt like you did, but I didn't know if I was missing something. Oh, very much right. so. I'm a nerd about like uh, color therapy and uh, the effects of certain tones and shades on uh, on how we um, interact with them and how we perceive them. Um, that's, I mean, I, yeah, I really am just a geek when it comes down to it. So much of Teeter Topple is just me engrossed in understanding how our brains work and uh, how we deal with things specifically. Teeter Topple is very much the product of a bunch of research and a lot of me being a complete goofball. Um, somewhere in between those two. But uh, the yellow is a very deliberate choice. I've been overusing yellow since I was in art school because I just, it's, it's so vibrant. It's so electrifying and it, it does have so many different meanings, but in context, it can take on a whole different monster. And I love that about that color. Well, it's, there's so many studies done based on color, like sports teams, uh, you know, specifically choose black because if they want a, an aggressive approach or something like that. Yeah. And um, like restaurants will have a lot of red because it makes you hungry. And then every corporate logo seems to be a certain shade of blue, you know, or, or like CEOs and their freaking necktie. Oh, my God. It's like, yeah. Like there's necktie blue. Like if you're a politician or CEO. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Necktie blue, which is also referred to as cornflower blue. Mm. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Power ties and the whatnot. Oh, I know all about this stuff. You've seen me out and about. I'm a dapper gent. Yes. You are dapper. You really are. You, you've you embraced that shit. It's yeah, great. Well, I mean, in an industry full of jeans and T-shirts and hoodies, I feel like the only punk rock thing you can do is look dynamite. Like that whole uh, Brian Ferry thing. Mm -hmm. you, know? <laughs> you just compared me to the lead singer of Roxy Music. I'm cool with that. <laughs> he was dashing, man. He was He's dashing. stylish. Very stylish. That's what I strive to be now is the Brian Ferry of comic books. I think you've achieved it. I'm fine with that. Um, so with, uh, with Mark's, uh, inside mental health that he's going through this, like the worst day imaginable, um, is, uh, let me, like, is he going through a bad spell that you think healthy brained people go through, um, that he's having this sort of break from reality and it's temporary or is, is Mark actually like could he be like diagnosed with a with a condition that's like been there all along? I think a lot of it has to do with 
how you perceive mental health, I think we are in a really interesting point, culturally speaking, where we're very vocal about um, where emotions and thoughts come from and, uh, for lack of a better word, different disorders. Uh, and I feel like the term healthy brain is kind of a thing of the past because what we're realizing as people collectively, as humanity, uh, is that there really is no such thing as a healthy brain. It's just different levels of acceptance, uh, understanding where your thoughts come from, understanding where your emotions come from and how you comprehend those. I think we're getting, we're finer tuning these things. We're starting to realize that it's not so black and white. It's actually quite gray most of the time for everyone across the board. And it's just a matter of how much you decide to grapple with uh, your inner, inner workings, I feel like. Well, it's funny when, you, um, if you've ever had the chance to, to research old psychiatric diagnoses. They're hilariously. Um, I, they are hilarious. I, I went to, um, at, at Steampunk World Fair last year, there was a lecture on Victorian asylum. Oh, yeah. And the long list of reasons that people were considered mentally ill is just so funny. I mean, masturbating is one of them. I was going to say, isn't it interesting that the female orgasm was at one point considered uh, a sign of lunacy? It was. And it, yeah. And, you know, and the fact that women got horny at all was something that needed to be treated by doctors. Well, they were clearly witches. Yes, obviously. (laughs) Um, And... You know, so the, like to to see these things that used to be in the DSM until you know even a couple years ago, like they updated it to the DSM five now, which is the the diagnostic giant text that doctors use. I mean, like you know how homosexuality and gender dysphoria and um, you know it just meant that there was something wrong with you, yeah, as opposed to well, this is how you are, and let's figure out how you can live with this, yeah. You know, so it's it's totally different instead of we need to cure you, which still exists. New Jersey, I think, finally outlawed trying to cure gay people. I think it's now it was something that was like pissing me off because our delightful governor, Christie, um, was not in favor of banning that therapy, that conversion therapy. Yeah, well, he's a fucking idiot. and I'm going on record so, with that one. Yeah. So I think by now more people realize what an asshole he is. I mean, let's be honest. Um, you can't cure fabulous. <laughs> you should just embrace it. If you're going to be fabulous, be as fabulous as you can be. Yeah. And that's, you know, and like you're saying that there's, it's, things aren't black and white. And this is, this is really, it's stuff that was probably acknowledged for thousands upon thousands of years. And then somewhere we went through this short period of human history where we were like, no, must be this way. And now we're finally, I think, rediscovering the spectrum of what makes a human person. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's refreshing and also terrifying because it's happening rapidly and we're not, yeah. we're not giving time to recalibrate. Like things are in motion. Wonderful, wonderful things of just understanding ourselves as people. And it's happening so quickly. It's like, OK, OK, OK. Now we got to we got to play catch up and understand all this. <laughs> it's yeah. And some of these conversations are really hard to have with like the different generations. Oh, absolutely. That's why I don't talk to old people. No offense, old people. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, these are arguments, you know, like having trans people have the right to use the bathroom that they need to use. I mean, it's like there's one of the states, I can't even remember which one, because this is just so ridiculous, that there's a law that they that you have the right to check somebody as they enter the bathroom. That's hilariously like to do foolhardy. There's 
man, let me yeah. tell you something. If you have to outlaw someone going to the bathroom, you're an idiot. You are an idiot. <laughs> Plain and simple. It is a doesn't matter who you are. If you got to go, you got to go. Shut up. Well, a lot of the conventions that I've been attending now usually have um, uh, three types of bathrooms. They usually have a men's, a women's, and then a gender-neutral bathroom, like FlameCon did, too, because yeah. I, yeah. I went to the wrong one. I was like, wait, because I got really turned around in that building, so I thought I had gone in the same bathroom I had gone in before, and I ended up in, in, in actually a different one. I was like, there's urinals in here. Am I supposed to be in here? <laughs> you got to see the other side of the fence. It's Yeah. I mean, I've, Not so I've done that on occasion. Now. Yeah, I've done that on purpose before, like when the lines are too mm-hmm. long, and it is it's just grotesque. Yeah. Like I will say that that I am in favor of of there being a clean bathroom and a do whatever the fuck you want bathroom. I don't care what the gender is. Yeah, I, I the just do whatever I you just want expect- bathroom is always the gentleman's room. Yeah, I just want it clean. Yeah, not for nothing, but as a gentleman, I expect a little bit of pampering and prissiness. I'm sorry about this whole state fair trough mentality that the men's rooms have at conventions. I'm not a fan of. It is so gross. Oh, it is. It is. Yeah. <laughs> Not a fan. Uh, so if you have to go when you're driving a long distance, will you go on the side of the road? Well, I can neither confirm nor deny that I've had commune with nature, but huh? I have. Yeah. It, it is quite delightful. But sometimes there's an emergency. Sometimes. That just happens. I don't go for long drives, though, so that's not usually a problem. <laughs> oh, okay. So I'm very much okay. a local yokel. Yeah, it's really like awkward out here that some of our interstates don't have rest stops yeah like they're deceiving they'll say that it's a rest stop but they literally mean just to rest yeah like there's nothing there there's no potties there's no vending machines nothing new jersey you're so weird ah new jersey how i miss thee (laughs) but if you go down the shore those rest stops are usually like pretty big and and uh they're like little like malls oh they have to cater to the tourism that's why (laughs) Yeah, it's totally different than if you're traveling through in order to actually hit Pennsylvania. Oh, absolutely. Those backwoods in New Jersey, they can be... They don't care. Oh you're, you're just expected to go next to the deer. Yep. All of them. All 300 <laughs> deer. <laughs> At once. Mm-hmm. I don't understand sometimes why the deer hang out on the side of the road. Yeah, they just want to see the show. It's like, it's not a good place for you, deer. <laughs> They don't know any better. We're invading their territory, so technically we should be apologizing to them. I know. I do very often. <laughs> yep. Um, that's why I get I get up on my uh, high horse about the bear hunt. I'm very anti-bear hunt because the bears aren't overpopulated. Isn't that bizarre, though, that we live in a world where like we're basically taking over portions of someone else's space? Yeah. And it's like, oh, we have a problem with the bears. We have a problem with the deer. It's like, well, maybe we shouldn't be here. Maybe we should stop expanding to these places where they are living. And yet then there are these, like you were talking about, like an apocalyptic feeling, you know, then there are these just vast spaces of abandoned buildings and just decrepit shit that nobody's ever going to rehabilitate. You know, it's like you've already knocked the shit down and built something. So just fix it. Use that. I get wildly annoyed with the, uh, the stretches of empty buildings that just go completely disused because it's cheaper with tax breaks to build something from the ground up in a new place mm-hmm. than it is to reutilize something that is perfectly there and just needs to be retrofit. Like, yep. what kind of idiocracy is that? Why, why are we doing that? Why are we wasting energy and space? I mean, I understand you want to save some money, but guess what? In the end, you're not saving 
anything, you are making more problems. There was a Walmart out here where... There's always um, a Walmart. It's always a Walmart. Um, there wasn't 20 years ago, but now they're everywhere. <laughs> but it literally went from one space where it had moved into um, something that had already like been paved. Yeah. And literally a parking lot away was a new township. Like it's a really confusing, there's one section where it's really confusing where the parking lot itself is in three different townships mm. because of how the like borders are. They built a brand new Walmart like uh, uh, 200 feet away because they wanted to be in the other township to get, you know, the better deal. It's like, this is the world oh we live God. in. These are the problems we have. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm just Why? sitting on the sideline going, yeah, I'm just going to draw comics and completely ignore you. Is the, is the comic life sweet? Is it just everything you expected it to be? It has its ups and its downs. Lately, I've been really enjoying it, though. But I think a lot of that comes from the fact that I've been working on my own stuff. There's something very gratifying about being in complete control of your destiny. And a lot of that has to do with taking an enormous leap of faith in your own ability as a multifaceted creator and just saying, you know what? No, God damn it. I like the stories that I tell. I'm going to tell those stories. And if they resonate with one or two people, that's enough for me. Like, I don't expect to be John Grisham overnight or anything like that. But I the feedback I have gotten on that first issue of Teeter Topple has more than validated my investment in myself. And it's it's going to continue to do so. And the more people that read it, the more people that have genuinely been excited about whatever I'm going to be working on next. Well, it's, it's you know, why I revere Felicia Day so much, because she basically had the same thing. She's like, I, I want to make something and I'm not getting the jobs to make this thing. So she, you know, got a couple of friends and made the guild and it like blew up into this big phenomenon, totally. and, you know. You know, sometimes all it takes is just a little bit of investment in yourself. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's amazing. So if people haven't read her book, it's um, it's really fantastic. Um, but like your your character, Mark, is an example of, you know, sometimes the world just shits on you. Oh, yeah. Life <laughs> shits on Comically you. so in his case at times. So, you know, there's. That's why I, I kind you know, I, I don't know, maybe because it's me and because I'm always depressed. I'm like, I don't know if I believe that you can take control of your life necessarily. Um, like um, Mark, for example, he gets really tired of people asking if he's okay when he doesn't even know. Like, what's okay? Yeah, because it's such a, um, it's such a, a know-nothing word. Like, okay? I mean, that's based on your perception, not mine. Yeah, I mean, you know, like other people could handle losing their job just fine and they have enough contacts and they get hired in a week. Yeah. You know, and other people start seeing puppets come to life. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot of that, yeah. there's there's more to the story, obviously. <laughs> right, right. There is. It's not just losing there his is. job. He, he definitely suffers some major there's, losses, but. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to not spoil the entire thing. I appreciate so, that. Um, but uh, um, I feel like a lot of that is just, I think people ask, are you Okay to gauge where they fall in the world. Um, that could be. Because I think people are selfish. I think... Hey, I am better than that person. Exactly. Like, you want to ask how someone is doing just so that you can compare and contrast to your own life. And, like, we're all guilty of it. We always... Like, that's the reason I hate small talk. Like, 
there's no substance to it. You're just kind of filling the ether and then using that to gauge how you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like art. Well, that's why I'm af- I'm afraid to answer the question when people ask me because I'm like, do you really want to know right now? <laughs> you know, my favorite response that I ever came up with that I think I probably threw in teeter topple when I was going through a rough time. I had someone ask me if I was okay, and I said, "Can I say yes?" And you understand that I really mean no. Mm-hmm. And I think that takes a lot of courage to say because I think people aren't confident enough in their emotions to actually admit that maybe they're going through a rough patch. I think it is it is paramount to understanding yourself. I reached that breaking point a couple of years ago. Where you're just where completely I just, fine with admitting I, it? Yeah, I just Good literally for you. felt like... That's amazing. There was, there was too much mental effort in lying. Absolutely. Absolutely. But that's that's the thing, though. Like, the second you admit, like, no, things are rough. Doesn't mean that they're going to always be rough, but, like, maybe someone's going to be a little bit, you know, kinder to you or a little bit more understanding or at least step outside their own comfort zone for just a, a minute and realize, like, maybe the world is a little bit bigger than me and my bullshit. But I think so much of what we try to do is hide how we feel and hide how we were thinking. Where is your head at? Where are you going? What are you doing? There's so many questions, but there's so few answers. I think so much of that is you can easily handle that if you're just honest with yourself and open with other people. But we're so scared to do that because we live in such rapidly vacillating times that we just, we don't think, we don't put ourselves as priorities ever. We're so forced to, you know, oh my God, look at this thing. Check out that thing. This thing is going on over here and blah, 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 blah. You're like walking down Sunset Strip. There's 101 flashing lights and amazing things you can do, but none of them are the things that are going to make you stop and go, okay, here I am. This is me. I think people aren't used to admitting to themselves, let alone admitting to other people that these are my emotions. These are real. These are valid. That is the the quintessential thing that I think people need to understand is that your feelings are valid, whether they be good, bad, in between, whatever. They're yours, so they're valid. And I think that's what was really important with what I was trying to say in the first issue of Teeter Topple. Mark doesn't know how he's doing. Everybody keeps asking him, and the only way he could just take a moment to himself is just flat out admit. Everyone keeps asking, I don't know. I love that. That was that was a, a, a moment where I was just like, I swear to God, Carl, Carl picked this out of my life. Oh, I picked it out of my life. There, <laughs> that is a, a reoccurring theme. How's it going? I don't know. It's going. Yeah, it's, you know, and it's, I don't know if this is happens for everybody or just something that, that people in creative careers go through, because I imagine it probably happens to everybody oh, where you, yeah, like where, like you've accomplished something and you should be thrilled at your accomplishment, but instead of the comparison of, well, at least I'm not as bad as that guy, it's the opposite. It's, I'm never going to be as good as this person. Well, we live in a comparative It's like, I've, I've accomplished, yeah, I've accomplished this, but, like, John Grisham has sold 8 billion books in the last minute. Yeah. Yeah, but we don't have context. Like, we don't allow ourselves to think within the confines of, like, well, I'm only at this point in my life, and John Grisham has been doing it for X amount of years, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it's and very much like that in comics, too. Like, I know dozens and dozens of writers and artists that 
will always be comparing themselves to someone else. And they have nothing in common with that artist or that writer. Like, you don't write this kind of story. You don't write this kind of story. Don't get bummed out because they're getting an audience of this. And, you know, you sold 13 copies at, you know, a small podunk convention in Wisconsin. Like, it doesn't matter. You sold stuff. People bought your stuff. People care about your stuff. They invested in you. Take that. Enjoy that. Like, keep it in context. You're doing well for you where you are. Yeah, and not everybody has, you know, certain privileges. Like, sometimes it really does matter who you know or, you know, who you've taken a class with or, you know, who you interned with. I think to a degree, yes. But I think that with all creative things, at the end of the day, it should matter. But I'm I'm still believing that if you do the work and you have the drive, and you just let the work speak for itself, eventually someone's going to give a shit. Because a genuine thing, whatever it may be, will always speak volumes louder than a product. I think it's sort of, um, I don't know if it's just comics. It's probably also to an extent in indie filmmaking too, but I, I think it's so such a loud discussion in comics because our indie outlet um, percentage-wise can be huge. Like you can go up and down Artist Alley and see more people that haven't worked in a major publication than have worked in a major publication. And um, a lot of that comes down to the mentality, though, I feel like. because if Yeah, like down, they feel like that's the goal. Like that's the only goal. Yeah, a, a lot gone. of times I'll cruise down Artist Alley and there's not a lot of actual making of stuff, but a lot of talking about stuff. I'm not a fan of that. I think you should just shut up and make stuff. At the end of the day, you can pitch and pitch and pitch, but until you sit down and you write that script and you illustrate that book and you try your damnedest, like I have more respect for someone who puts out a wildly mediocre self-published book than someone who talks about this grand universe that they're working on in their head for eight years. Like All that matters to me is if you make the goddamn book. If you are actually making what you're talking about, then you are delivering. I don't care if you have a big audience or a small audience or just your mom hanging clips on the fridge. If you're making it, it counts. I think that's something that the literary world is only catching up to because it's been such a stigma to self-publish novels or nonfiction books until recently. And it's because people are like, oh, but there's a lot of crap then because it's self-published. And it's like, well, there's a lot of crap that's published by, you know, random penguin, too. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, the the level of crap has nothing to do with the brand that or the amount of money that, that came out of it. Absolutely. I mean, it all depends on what you're looking for, too. I mean, I'm not going to be reading 101 things off of Doubleday, but they aren't really my audience, you know? <laughs> I don't think I'm going to have really much invested interest in like whatever is on the New York Times bestseller list because I'm a bit of a niche interest person. I'm not going to be reading that kind of stuff. Like my favorite authors are, you know, they're all gonzo crazy people. There's nothing. I don't want to read any of that normal white bread stuff, you know? Yeah, it's funny when I look at um, book lists and I'm like, I've never heard of any of these people. And it's just, you know, but then I'll try to talk about a book and, you know, it's sort of like yelling into the void. Oh, absolutely. Like, no, really get this book, I swear. <laughs> absolutely. I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm more interested in stranger voices or people that are a little bit more in touch with whatever. But uh, there seems to be like a general 
boringness about most mainstream media that I just can't get my head around. But here's the thing, Carl. Yeah. So let me ask you about making a living because we've now, you know, re-entered the, a time where people can have um, patrons of the arts, like, you know, like I have with Patreon, which is a, a very cool thing yeah. and I'm very grateful for. Um, you know, back a couple hundred years ago, you would have these benefactors who would say, I'm going to, you know, give you hundreds of gold coins if you, you know, make this great biblical scene and, you know, but you have to make sure that one of these people looks like the bishop. Um and we will pay you to do this. And so you are making your living making art, mm -hmm. but you're being paid. So we're, you know, with with today, it's kind of been like a whole, we're back to the starving artist. Yeah. Um, you know, it's my friend and I like to like to go on and on and talk about how the starving artist um, myth has got to change. Like we've got to, we've got to start supporting things other than sports. Um, you know, like. Not not all sports people make millions and millions and millions, but a lot of them do. Yeah, unnecessarily I, so. But you have to remember you have to remember they're representing not only sports but brands. At yeah, least like dozen. they get the endorsement. Yeah, they get yeah, 101 they, endorsements, so they're getting checks from multifaceted corporations that they really have no acknowledgement of. You know, <laughs> they spend their life devoted to this one thing, and basically their careers are about as long as the length of a goldfish. Right. So, so how do how do you um possibly consider creative careers when it feels like, but I still have to, you know, make sure that I can pay rent and food and heat. <laughs> well, I'm a professional NFL player on the weekends, so I don't really have to worry yeah. about money anymore. <laughs> are you, are you a kicker? <laughs> you and I talking about sports is, <laughs> isn't that funny? Like, I don't know. Yeah. Are you a kicker? I yes. Think, yes, I am. I think that's a position. <laughs> it's a guy who kicks the ball, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, well, I have a day job. I work at a record store. It's not glamorous by any way, shape, or form. And I still do, like, contract illustration work. Um, so the fact that I still have time to do comics is kind of a blessing because my time is pretty much monopolized by, you know, punching a clock and dealing with people on a day-in and day-out basis and uh, then coming home and sitting at a desk for, like, four hours working on drawings for other people's stuff just so that I could have, like, four more hours to draw, you know, my little teeter topple book or whatever else I'm working on. Uh, For those of you who don't know what a record store is, <laughs> we will not be friends. It's there. It's a building you can go into and you can talk to human beings and ask about the kind of music first and then purchase the music on something that's not just your computer. It's an amazing, amazing thing. Is it just vinyl? Is it like a very specific store? or Oh, it's, it's it... vinyl, it's CDs, it's, uh, you know, all sorts of things. The kids like cassette tapes now, so that's weird. I Yeah, I've seen that that's coming back. Yeah. It's so funny. Yeah. Love when dead media makes a comeback in a post-ironic way. Yeah, well, I've seen ones that were converted to plug into USBs. That's just doofy. <laughs> I, can't, <laughs> I can't get behind backwards thinking like that. But whatever, the kids want the retro thing. But uh, yeah. yeah, it's, you know, day jobs are day jobs. Okay. It's, uh, so you still have to feed yourself and you still have to, you know, pay your rent. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty low maintenance. I'm very hand to mouth. I mean, as long as I have a roof over my head and a little bit of food in my belly, I'm usually okay. Um, so, yeah, it's not, it's not really a big deal. I mean, you can 
you'll notice though I'll have like holes in my socks. It's like a running joke now. Uh, is that I, I when I when I start to make money again, I'll have socks without holes in them. But uh, otherwise, it's very much a, a pauper's lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> it's glamorous. I love it. Comics are so glamorous. They're yeah. so glamorous. I'm putting the sexy back in comics. Are you kidding me? The starving that's artist what, mentality. It's all there. <laughs> you know, that's why in New York, the line goes like clear down the aisle to come meet you. Absolutely. It's not just because they think like that fancy guy might give them money. They're going to, you know, they're going to start breaking out those ropes and, you know, give you a, one of those Disney World lines soon. <laughs> the day that happens, I will probably drop dead in shock. <laughs> uh, but no, you want to set up velvet ropes for me? Be my guest. You should just do that. You should just like, <laughs> have it around the booth. <laughs> I'd be fine with that, actually. That would just make me look like an egomaniacal bastard, though. And I'm so far opposite from that. I'm only now starting to take compliments. Like it, for the longest time, I was so uh, self-deprecating about my work and very, very much uh, a bit of a shoegazer. People would compliment me and be like, oh, yeah, it's okay. Thank you. Now I'm just like, no, it is really good because I put a lot of effort into it. And thank you. And it does mean a lot. It really does. I'm overcoming my, uh, my fear of being acknowledged. I'm learning to love myself. You are. It's great. You know, it's great growth. to have person. Yeah, self care, mm-hmm. self love. Have some confidence and know you don't suck. Yeah. Well, my fear ultimately is coming off like an egomaniacal jerk. <laughs> they're obvious, though. They're very obvious people. They are. They're, you know, but I mean, they're they must be doing something right because they always get the ink. <laughs> they do. I. It's well, of course, they run the world. Exactly. But in comics, it's so it's like a screaming obvious truth, like. Oh yeah, that person loves themselves. Look at them talk about that thing they did. <laughs> mhm. And yeah, I mean, and that's why they end up as the guest of honor at, you know, every show. And that's why you see less and less of me at uh, shows. Which ones do you normally go to? Um, none at the moment, actually. Not I you know okay. what? I I went on a bit of a Twitter rant about this and I should probably clarify a few things i i went on this stance about uh how comic book conventions are kind of getting a little bit more difficult as a means of self-promotion and pushing your quote-unquote brand um that's uh true to a fault i think artist alleys are still essential in comics press and marketing but i feel like it's getting harder and harder for the little guys to make a name for themselves in there. Um, seeing as culturally speaking, uh, comics are awesome. Suddenly, you know, one out of five movies being made is a comic book property in some way or another, or a fan community sort of thing. So the draw to a comic book convention is so much larger now, and it has to appeal to a much wider spectrum of audience. So artist alley gets ignored quite a bit. And Unfortunately, because of that, John Q. Public isn't going to go seeking out your little indie book that you spent your life making. Um, I think it is still very important, but I think bigger conventions make it a lot more difficult for you to be seen and for you to utilize it as traditionally it used to be. Um, I think now that comic conventions are not as comic-centric, so much of it is... It's a challenge. It's a bit more of an uphill battle. I think the safe bet is to always focus on conventions that are very much focused on comics and are interested 
in pushing the medium as opposed to getting people through the door. And there's a few of those, and those are the ones that I like and I try to do, but at the same time, I, I get very, I get very soapboxy about this sort of stuff. I apologize. No, that's why I want to know. I want to, I mean, well, first of all, doing a big show like New York is very expensive. Very expensive. Very expensive. And, but that's the thing, though. And, as a small indie press creator, like, you're basically taking whatever profits you make for the entire year to debut something at a small show like that, which you may not even get, like, an artist alley table for, or you have to spend the big bucks and get an exhibitor table, which runs almost as much as I paid for my, my car. Right. Like, and that's – you don't make that kind of money making comics, you know? Right. At the end of the day, and, you are chalking up a great loss because you're so not going to make that money back. And but there and then there are these smaller shows um, that I haven't been to, but I've heard of. Like it's, there's one in Massachusetts called Mice. Yes. For for independent comics, Absolutely. and then there's like um, Mocha. Mocha SPX. In, in SPX. Yeah. Are, so there. I mean, you're not going to have you know Capcom debuting games there or anything like that. That's very much. Like, so hopefully your table's not going to cost you two grand either. No, it, quite the opposite actually. Very affordable. But I mean, again, that's a very cultivated convention you have to be prepared to show up with a body of work and not just be a guy selling iron man prints yeah i've seen a lot of comic book creators go on big tirades about things like the the the, the print guys first of all a lot of people are all digital now so yep. their stuff is only going to be print yeah um but but they i think they get more upset about the property like there's just rows and rows of, of people who have to make some kind of living drawing Iron Man and Spider-Man and Batman um, and, you know, or the minions or whatever it is because they're, they're at least covering their cost. Mm -hmm. And it's not that they're incapable of producing original stuff, but they get called fan artists. Yeah. Well, most of so, them are I mean, too, though. That's the thing. Yeah. When I was at uh, Baltimore Comic-Con last uh, spring – my uh, fellow creator friend, Joel Olar, and I, uh, we just, just for shits and giggles, walked down Artist Alley and just to notice how many people actually had original work, how many people had self-published comics or had, you know, comics that came out from publishers that they were pushing, anything like that. And it seemed like for every 12 people in a row, more than half of that was 11 by 17 gloss prints of something that they had you know, like a character from a Marvel book or a DC book that, you know, they don't really have the rights to be drawing. They, they're just right. doing that to make a quick buck and they sell them at like 20 bucks a pop. Like not for nothing. You want art of a thing. Come on, I'll do a commission. I do really cheap commissions live on the spot, like straight up paint and ink. I will make a mess for you. <laughs> but they'd much rather have like that thing that's on the, oh, it's a poster. It looks so whatever. I love that thing. Ah, no. Oh, and these, you know, they're not, I don't want to hate on people that do fan art or anything like that. But to me, it seems like a gross misappropriation of space when Artist Alley used to be, when I was going to comic book conventions as a young lad, way back when, in the Trianosaurus times, <laughs> they, they had a lot of original material and a lot of artists pushing their work. And that was what made me want to make comics, just seeing people just ravenously out there going, hey, have you seen this? 
what's what what are you into let me pitch you my book like that was cool i did not get that from the last few cons i went to i maybe two or three or four people genuinely had an interest in promoting their work as opposed to making a buck i think that it gets to be a certain point though of success indie wise where people can can maybe do that and make any kind of profit no less break even because i've talked to a lot of guys who say hey yeah they'd love to you know somebody to come up and buy their original book or fund their kickstarter and their kickstarters go unfunded um meanwhile they can pay for booth space with prints of you know lady death and rogue and iron man <laughs> like that you mentioned two scantily clad characters as i often see them in artist <laughs> <laughs> yeah, usually. Like, ooh, ooh. I mean, but Brian. But speaking of Lady Death, though, Brian Polito came down on somebody. He came down on a friend of mine because he had drawn a Lady Death print that he was selling, or I don't know if it was a if it was a commission, mm -hmm. which is a diff different ball game. Yeah. But yeah, he came down on him and said, "That's my character. You can't draw that." He has rights to do that, you know. Yeah. It is and character. it was just like it, you know, it was like to be presented with that like in your face. It's like that's got to be terrifying. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> the hammer came down. Yeah. And, you know, and it's not – and what I find is the reason I get a little bit upset about it is just because um, it's not that these artists are incapable of drawing original characters. It's that nobody is paying them for original characters. So they just know that they want to do what's, what's going to give them a profit. Yeah. I mean, and that's just the other side of the coin. I'm, I can't hate on that whatsoever. They're trying to get discovered as much as I'm trying to get discovered. It's just yeah. not my bag. I mean, you get to a great point, like Jamal Eigel recently, you know, came out and said he absolutely will not be displaying his old DC work. He's more than happy to sign it. But right now he's, you know, his table will feature things that he has a vested interest in. Absolutely. And, you know, that's good on him, too. I think the more that creators turn away from the stuff that they did for contract work, the better, because, I mean, it just puts the spotlight on the stuff that they're really passionate about. Yeah, I mean, but it's taken him like 25 years to get to the point where people know who he is enough to say, oh, well, let me look at your creator. Oh, it's a journey. It's a journey. Unless you're willing to take the hit early on and be that guy, you know. Maybe that's just my problem. Maybe I'm crazy enough to have uh, to have that much of a subtle ego about my own work. that I'm just like, nah, I'd rather you look at what I do. I know. I think it's a wonderful thing to have to, to have enough faith in in your original work. Mm hmm. That's a long journey. <laughs> it is. I mean, I self-published my novel because after so many rejections, which I realized was not a lot in the grand scheme of things. I know people that literally bombard inboxes of agents mm -hmm. where they send out like 100, 200. I was really specific when I looked at agent listings to see who was specifically open for the genre I was writing. Right. I was really meticulous about reading their submission entries and stuff. That's smart, so, too. If I got, you know, like whatever it was, like eight rejections back and people laugh at that, they're like only eight. And I'm like, yeah, eight, eight people telling me no is enough for me to just say, I'm going to put this out myself. So, you know, it's all it takes so sometimes. The, sometimes that's so all it takes. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I don't, you know, whatever. Maybe I just don't don't have it in me to, you know, do that sort of um it's like being that, that pickup artist, gross, 
factor where I feel like, you know, they teach you to talk to 20 girls because one of them will say yes. Yeah, I, I don't relate to that. <laughs> it just feels so gross to me. It does. Like, I don't want to I don't want to bombard 200 agents hoping one of them will say yes. Yeah, but you know, the funny thing is, as with a pickup artist, it's the one that you don't really want <laughs> to be interested. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, yes, absolutely. And then you're like, oh, great. Now I'm stuck with this decision. Fantastic. Yeah. Way to go. Poor decision making. Yeah, it's, it could be. It could be. Yeah. So, um, so I, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe my ego is catching up to yours where I had enough faith to just say, I'm putting this out myself. I had a friend help me, you know, go through the formatting so that it didn't look like a complete crap. Yeah. And, you know, and then I had, you know, of course, a wonderful artist friend do my cover. I think that's what it comes down to. The moment you realize, like, I'm really tired of waiting for someone else to have control on my work. That you just say, I'm going to do it my way. Yeah. And that's what it was. Yeah. You know, and it's not that I didn't do any editing. I had, you know, I had a couple people that helped me edit. So and you should I don't feel take like that. It, take that moment and just remember that you did it. Like, don't let it go unnoticed by yourself that like you took the time to say yes this is what i want and i'm going to put it out this way that's a big step so congratulations to you thank you it lasted about a day <laughs> then you were ready to move on to the next one because everybody knows that the second it's out you need to work about the next yeah oh i know how that well, it wasn't is. even that it was just it was it was about a day it was a day of feeling good that and accomplished and then it wore off and went Okay, but my friend has ten books out, and I have one. Right, right. <laughs> oh, I've I've been there. Yeah, but I don't know. I'm incredibly prolific, apparently, and most people hate me for that. But that's just because uh, I want it really bad. <laughs> that's good. I sleep more. I sleep. I think I think I sleep a lot more than other people, except for the year that I went without sleep, which was. I, I'm sure people noticed my insanity. It was like the last five years for me. I'm only now starting to understand what sleep is and how great it is. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, like your, like your character, Mark, with all of his hallucinations and things. I was like, oh, my God, that's what I look like if I go 24 hours without sleep. Yeah. And I went like, you know, I, I literally went six months with maybe getting an hour. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I know how that is. That's why Mark is the way he is. Yeah. I, I mean, but I loved how you how you portrayed Mark and his his lunacy, whatever you want to call what he was going through, um, you gave it this positive spin. I think you said you're never alone when you're out of your mind. And it's like really true. It is really true. Because <laughs> um, he had his own world to, to retreat to. And he had, and even when he was in the real world, then the puppets were coming alive. Oh, yeah. Imaginary friends are okay. I'm okay with that. I love imaginary friends. I wish I still had one. I never had one growing up. So I imagine as an adult, I'm about overdue. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Yeah, you should. Yeah. You should. Then I have to come to terms with like the fact that I'm an adult and I have an imaginary friend. It's like uh it's that Jimmy Stewart movie Harvey. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, what would your imaginary friend be like a creature or would it be a person? See, that's a good question. I had, working on Teeter Topple, I've lived in constant fear that most of my close friends are actually imaginary. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, are you real and you go up and grab their cheeks? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just have to check. You, you just have you know, to you check. You don't want to make John yeah, the John Nash thing. Can you see him? Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I don't want to wake up and realize that I was Tyler Durden the whole time. Yeah. Spoilers! <laughs> it's like, that's what these bruises are. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh. 
Oh, Carl. That's- so where can people find information about you so that they can, you know, follow this amazing indie career and talk to you about music and rock stuff and you know, <laughs> being a rebel? That's, yeah, that's me in a nutshell. Dress- <laughs> music dressing and, better. Yeah, <laughs> dressing better rock stuff. I, I, you know, I haven't been that prolific on Twitter lately. I just I don't really have much to contribute, and I've been working a lot more on comics so i mean unless i get extra ranty which doesn't happen as much um <laughs> but you can find me on my website slowmotionart.net that's s-l-o motionart.net uh or on twitter at kid reverie and uh i love talking to people especially if they want to talk about comics and making stuff or just getting attaboy speeches i'm really good at cowboy speeches getting people to move it's true i love it you're the opposite of me I am a ray of goddamn sunshine, I've been told. <laughs> Whereas I will tell you that the world sucks, everything's terrible, give up. Contrasting points of view. That's how you reach major pinnacles in your life. <laughs> so uh, so uh, this is why we're good to like interact with both of us on Twitter. Absolutely. Yeah, because uh, you should at some point find harmony. That's the goal, isn't it? Just a little bit of yeah. balance? Just a little. It is truly. Okay, so um slow motion and kid reverie and maybe at some kind of show in real life person sometime. Uh well you know what, I'll make the announcement if this is even an announcement. I think I've mentioned it a couple times before, but uh Teeter Topple will officially be out in time for New York City Comic Con through our good friends at two one five. Okay. It will no longer be a uh self-published, self-financed, self-aggrandizing journey. It will be a uh, three-issue miniseries, and I'm pretty sure I'll have at least the, uh, the first two, possibly three, in time for that big old monolith convention there. All right, that's fantastic. And then you can see all of the other really cool 215 Inc. work at the same time. And they usually have like six people there for you to meet and talk to you about making comics and the stories themselves. And five out of the six of them will be sober. <laughs> <laughs> oh, see, and this is like I'm usually carrying my flask, so this is why we get a chocolate vodka last time. I remember. Yes, yeah, absolutely. You gotta. Oh, Carl, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. This has been the best discussion I've had so far this week. It's only Monday, though. Yeah, <laughs> and it's not a real day. It's February 29th, so this discussion didn't really happen. This is all a dream. You guys can follow me on Twitter at Elizabeth Amber and everything else is at amberunmasked.com. Don't forget to look for Cardiac Arrest. And please go to the Patreon at patreon.com slash amberunmasked.